man-to-man coverage. This is the PFT PM Podcast. And now, your host, Mike Florio. What's up, everybody? It's the July 18 edition of the PFT PM Podcast. If you were listening to the show earlier this week, you'll remember that I promised today would include an interview of Jeff Perlman, author of the new book, Football for a Buck, The Crazy Rise and Crazier Demise of the USFL. That's coming up momentarily. It's an extended discussion. So on days when we have extended discussions, you know what happens. Less time for me to babble on and on about other things. There's not a ton of things happening today in the NFL. Cowboys, top Forbes list of most valuable franchises. I always get a little, I don't know, Anytime Forbes tries to tell tell me what privately held businesses are worth, I say, how do you know? How do you really know? Ultimately, it's worth what someone will pay for it. But the Cowboys at $4.8 billion, it'll be interesting to see how much those numbers go up as legalized gambling spreads throughout the various American states. The Le'Veon Bell situation, we've been talking about that. I think I have some questions that have been posed on that, so I'll refer or defer. Is it refer or defer? Either way, I'll wait to address that until we get later into the podcast. Todd Gurley had some comments about the situation. Gurley obviously in position at some point to get paid or not get paid. Antonio Brown on the cover of Madden 19. You know, it really doesn't mean as much as it used to because not many people actually buy the game anymore. I'd love to see the numbers on that. Who buys the game versus who goes out and, and downloads the digital copy onto the console. But even then, when you fire up the game, you're going to see Antonio Brown for a good 30 to 45 seconds at the outset of the the playing of the Madden game every time you play it. That That's the one complaint that I have about that game. The loading times are still way too long relative to we're just so used to everything instantaneous that it takes a while for the games to start. It takes a while when you go from the screen where you want to play a game to the time the game starts. It, it just... that That... That is a little annoying because i got to have it all now. I want it all, and I want it now. Right now, here's what you're going to get. I'm going to throw this to the Jeff Perlman interview that was recorded earlier today. Author of Football for a Buck, the Crazy Rise and Crazier Demise of the USFL. Here's my discussion with Jeff Perlman. Okay, so the PFTPM podcast continues, and this is a guy that I wanted to talk to probably five pages into his latest book. I've read several of his books now. This one, maybe it's my favorite because it's the one I've read most recently. I enjoyed the Brett Favre book. I enjoyed Boys Will Be Boys, but Football for a Buck, The Crazy Rise and Crazier Demise of the USFL from Jeff Perlman coming September 11, 2018. Jeff, welcome to the program. How are you? I'm good. Thanks a lot, man. So this book, I look, I, I saw, I think it was in the acknowledgments where at one point, someone said to you, nobody wants a USFL book, possibly with an expletive or two in there. What yeah. what, what possessed you to write about a football league that died 30 years ago? Because when I was growing up in my tiny, mail-packed New York uh, town, I loved, like, loved the USFL. I just loved it. And um, when I was a true story. When I was a senior in high school, AP English, Mr. Heights class, uh, our final assignment was a 20-page paper on the subject of our choice. And I said, I want to do a story. I want to do a piece on my, I want my paper to be about the downfall of the USFL. And he's like, really? And I'm like, yeah, it's going to be great. End up writing 40 pages on the USFL and handing that in as my final paper. And um, I just loved, I always loved it. I always loved the league. I love the colors. I love the names. I love the uniqueness. I love that it was in spring. Everything about it I loved. And it had always been in my head to write a book. But I kept having people tell me nobody wants a book on the USFL. True story. So when did you decide, screw what everyone's telling me, I'm going to write a book about the USFL anyway? Right, so my last book to come out was about Brett Favre. And I had no interest in this in writing a Brett Favre book. I ended up loving the process, loving the project. But it wasn't something that interested me. And I basically thought, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to, I'm going to pitch a book that has big market appeal, like Favre, but I'm going to try to attach the USFL to it. And I was lucky where uh, Hunt and Mifflin, they were one of the two to bid on the Favre book, the two best bidders. And I said, I would take less money if you pay me not very much to do a USFL book. And that's actually ended up being a two-book deal. I want to write the USFL first. They said, you got to do Favre first. I was like, fine. I've been waiting to do this book forever and ever and ever. 
So um, it's been it's been in my head for a long time, and I finally Favre was really the gateway to the USFL. How long does it take you in a book like this? It's one thing to write a book about one person. There's a fairly finite universe of people you can speak to, but when you're talking about a league that had what what was the most teams it had at one point? Did they ever get to eighteen? Yeah, they're at eighteen. Yeah, I mean, you, you, you've got a lot of different teams, coaches, teams moving from city to city. I don't think the Breakers ever stayed in one place for more than one season. How, how much harder is that? How much time does it take to get everything that you feel like you need to have in order to sit down and put this together? Right, so I usually take two to three years to write a book. But I got paid so little for this book that financially I I just had to really bust my butt on this. So I, um, I gave myself one year to do the book. And then I've been interviewing 450 people from the USFL. I just, like, gave my life to this book. So it was one year of nonstop, nonstop USFL, uh, where usually in a comfortable world I would do it in two to three. How close did you get to having a chance to interview the 45th president of the United States in connection with this book? I never had a shot. You know, I did my whatever, put my car, you know, if you saw the 30 for 30, Mike Tolan, who did that great filmmaker, um, he got to sit down with Trump and it was really terrible and kind of disastrous. And Trump was his typical smug self. Um, and Trump hates this subject. He's always hated this subject. It doesn't make him look good. It's, it's kind of embarrassing. He knew Tolan and he gave him the interview. Um, I knew from the beginning, the odds of Trump sitting down to talk to us about, especially when he was running for president, uh, were slim and none. And they turned out to be none. And this is a guy who, setting all politics aside, seems like he has an uncanny ability to take anything, no matter how negative it is, and spin it as a positive. And it may just be, and and I was shocked by the extent to which he torpedoed the USFL. There may be absolutely not a single thing he can point to, a single thing he can cling to, to claim a positive of any kind. It was that bad. And and at times, I, I, I was reading different things about what Trump did and how he was so obsessed with moving to the fall and obsessed with trying to get to the NFL. I, I, it seemed incredible to me. But it sure seems like he was the guy who, more than anyone else, or maybe the only guy who had it in his mind that he was in it for himself and the hell with the USFL. Yes, yeah, it's really interesting. Like People see me and they say, God, you're really anti-Trump. And I would say... It, did, it had nothing to do with him as president or as a political candidate. You know, I had no, I had no beef with Trump except what he did to the USFL. And, and basically what happened is you have this spring league. It starts in 1983. Um, he was actually supposed to be an original owner, and he backed out at the last minute. Then after a year, USFL had a promising first year. A lot of problems, but a promising first year in 1983. The owner of the New Jersey Generals was a guy named Jay Walter Duncan, who was from Oklahoma, and he didn't want to keep coming to New York for, for football. So he put the team on the market. Trump bought it. He jumped in. Never mentioned, never mentioned in the lead up to buying the team that the USFL should move to fall, that he wanted to take on the NFL. As soon as he gets the team, as he's approved by, uh, by the other owners and, and he's, he's named one of the New Jersey Generals, it's all about fall. We need to take on the NFL. We need to go head to head with the NFL. Spring is a joke, blah, blah, blah. And, um, it's all about him ultimately getting an NFL franchise. That's what this all was about. And everything he did was a disaster. He, he guaranteed that he could get a TV deal in the fall. He was never able to. He guaranteed that they would win a lawsuit. He was going to hire the best lawyers. He hired Roy Cohn, who was famous for uh, representing Joseph McCarthy during McCarthyism days. That was a disaster. Then he hired Harvey Myerson, disaster. He had the hearings in New York where his name was toxic instead of Houston where another owner, Jerry Argovitz, was convinced it would have worked out. That was a disaster. He also did a lot of interesting things. You know, the USFL, the whole idea was we're going to keep salaries down at first. We're going to make it a regional league. We're going to have, um, we're going to have, you know, like the Tampa Bay Bandits. Their pool of players is going to primarily come from Florida, Florida State, Florida A&M, teams like that. He sort of just blew it up. I'm going to spend as much money as possible. He started signing. He signed Brian Seitz, the former NFL MVP, Gary Barbro, Kansas City. Jim LeClaire, Cincinnati, on and on and on. Um, he blew up the salary structure. So one after another after another, he was a purely destructive um, force for the U.S. of L. Truly destructive. Why did he think, and maybe I'm incorrect here, but he wanted to have a New York, New Jersey Generals team 
in the NFL with the Jets and the Giants there. Why did he think a third team would have fit into the NFL New York, New Jersey market? All right, so it was, it was kind of interesting. He, um, the Jets had recently moved to the Meadowlands in New Jersey, so now the New York market was, was void. He was pretty convinced that New York, uh, that they were going to build a football stadium in Manhattan, which years later they almost did, um, and that the, the market could handle three teams. He also was willing to have the Generals die and start an entire new team in New York. Like, it didn't have to be the Generals for him, but it had to be a New York team. He just thought the market was big enough. As soon as the Jets left, there was this big void. His idea was that gonna, you know, team can start playing in Queens for a few years, you know, in, you know where Shea Stadium is, and eventually build a team in Manhattan, and that this city, this region would support three teams. I think you could make an argument population-wise, TV market-wise, that maybe it could. You know, Trump continues to twist the tail of the NFL from time to time over the anthem policy, and most people believe he's just catering to his base, but it really does seem like there's some deep-seated resentment over the fact that he never got in, going all the way back to that meeting you write about, that secret meeting that he had with then-Commissioner Pete Rozelle. Right, so he met with, uh, he basically, in uh, 1984, he calls Pete Rozelle, who he knew, you know, casually. He used to call Pete Rozelle my friend. Rozelle never thought of Donald Trump as a friend. He was an acquaintance. But he reached out to Pete Rozelle when he was owning the Generals, and Rozelle was the commissioner of the NFL. And he said, would you, would you be willing to meet? And Rozelle says, oh, yeah, sure. And they meet at uh, Trump rents a suite at the Pierre Hotel, fancy hotel in New York. And he basically says to Rozelle, I want to get in the NFL. Whatever you need me to do with the USFL, I'll do. This league doesn't mean anything to me, um, blah, blah, blah. And Rozelle says to him, as long as I'm affiliated with the NFL, you and your family will have nothing to do with this league. You know, he saw Trump for what he was, um, which was a toxic sort of con man. And they also saw, in the NFL back then, it was very much about kind of, quote-unquote, old money, to use a Titanic term. You know, it was, it was guys who, who, whose families had had money for a long time, big, big money. And they didn't think of Trump. They saw Trump kind of as a, as a carnival barker, you know, as a, as a guy who bragged and boasted, as he does now, um, but, but, but didn't have the money, the financial wherewithal behind it. So I don't think they ever took him seriously from a financial standpoint, and certainly not from a temperamental standpoint. You know, I hadn't thought of it until you just mentioned that concept of the old money and the old guard and the family-owned teams back in the mid-'80s. He was kind of ahead of his time by just a few years, right? Because starting with Jerry Jones in 1989, we saw this pivot toward the new money owners mm-hmm. and the brash and the bold and if he had maybe just played it a little differently in the early to mid 80s maybe there would have been an opportunity for him in the nfl once you get into the late 80s and into the 90s he actually really was if you want to give him some credit he actually was jerry jones before jerry jones in a lot of ways um if you were a new jersey generals fan which i was you love the guy he was spending big money on players he was wooing Lawrence Taylor. he was wooing mark asno he was wooing randy white he almost got Don Shula to coach the team. He came super close, having Shula leave the Dolphins to coach the New Jersey Generals. Um, he, t- he took a team that, when he bought them, they were a crappy sub-500 team, and he made them a, a you know they made the playoffs the last two years. He was a good owner if you were in a bubble and just reading for the New Jersey Generals. Um, and I agree with you. He was this kind of new money, brash, you know, boastful. I know more than you know. I'm going to come in and change the system. So, I mean, just the same way um, Jerry Jones fired Tom Landry as his first act, uh, the first thing Donald Trump did was he fired Chuck Fairbanks, another long-established football coach. So there are definitely a lot of parallels there. It's a very interesting uh, uh, take right there. How different do you think things would have turned out for the USFL if John Bassett, the owner of the Tampa Bay Bandits, hadn't developed cancer and passed away? I think not as much as we would like to think. I um you know, Ambassador was basically his foil. Ambassador was a guy, you know, he owned the World Football League team, too. Ambassador sort of, he was a slow and steady wins the race guy. We need to stick to this plan and it'll work. And I saw how the World Football League ended, and, and we don't want to do that. But Trump really stomped all over him. You know, Trump stomped all over him. So Bassett, by the end, even when he was, you know, early in his declining health, was becoming increasingly sort of a lone signal, yelling, don't listen to this guy, don't listen to this guy, and most of the people listened. And how how did he pull it off? Is it just force of personality? Is it persistence? Just, can we get this guy to shut up? We'll just go along with him if that's what it takes for him to move on. Why was he able to, to get people to act against, ultimately, their best interests? And you could ask the 
same exact question in 2016 to, to America. I mean, it's a, he has, he, you know, he's one of the great snake oil salesmen in the history of sports. Forget politics, of sports. He's a brilliant, he was a brilliant snake oil salesman. I mean, he, he convinced the other owners. It's amazing if you think about it, Mike. He convinced the other owners who had teams in NFL cities that it would be their best interest to move to the fall. So the Houston Gamblers voted for the move to fall. You know, the Breakers, who were in New Orleans at the time of the vote, voted for the move to fall. These teams voted to actually go in in a, in a season that they the Pittsburgh Maulers supported moving to fall when they were going to face the Pittsburgh Steelers. It is a crazy ability that I wish I had in many ways, but don't, to woo people to see your side to, you know, lying in a lot of cases, uh, you know, through a brashness. I mean, he did something, he did one thing that I just, it had me laughing in a way in hindsight researching it. He decided he was going to sign Doug Flutie and uh, coming out of Boston College off of the Heisman Trophy. Doug Flutie was no better than a third, fourth round NFL pick. But Donald Trump loved the headlines that Doug Flutie brought. So he decided he was going to sign Doug Flutie and he told his partners with the generals he was going to get the rest of the U.S. of owners to pay for it. And he literally sent a letter that I've read that I posted on Twitter uh, a couple of times um, to Harry Usher, the commissioner of the U.S. of L. I've bought Doug, I've gotten Doug Flutie here. It has done wonders for the league. Of course, the league was, it did no wonders for the league. It's done wonders for the league. And I expect the other owners to pay for it too. And each owner should pay a percentage of that. It is the Mexico wall. 30 years earlier <laughs> as Doug Flutie. It's crazy. And the other owners are like, this is what went up. No one paid a cent for Doug Flutie except for Donald Trump. But he he just had that he walked with an air. He reminds me when I covered baseball and I covered Barry Bonds. And Barry Bonds was a guy in the San Francisco Giants clubhouse. He treated everyone like crap. But he walked with this air and he walked like he belonged. And soon enough, Barry Bonds has four chairs. Everyone else has two. Barry Bonds has a masseuse. Barry Bonds has his personal publicist. If you walk with a certain air and you talk with the confidence, whether you're telling the truth or not, people listen to you. If they hadn't moved to the fall and hadn't completely turned the league upside down, if they had just stayed steady in the spring, moved forward, how much longer do you think the USFL would have lasted or could have lasted? So I think ultimately you would have had a merger. You would have had an absorption of teams. I mean, you had a team in Tennessee, would have been a great market. Jacksonville was the most successful USFL franchise. Would have been a great, obviously, would have been a great NFL market. Uh, theoretically, Birmingham, you know, there were markets, Orlando slash Tampa, you probably would have merged it to. I think four or five teams would have been absorbed by the NFL. I also think the thing that really came to haunt a lot of the USFL owners was the 1987 NFL strike. Because if that had happened and the USFL was around, uh, you're talking about a game changing situation where all of a sudden a lot of players are just jumping leagues to get the paycheck. Um, and I think a lot of owners look at that. I know a lot of the owners looked at the 87 strike and thought, why, did, why didn't we just wait a little longer? Why did we do this? I, and I saw that in your book, but they're not in season then, right? So they go on strike from the NFL in September of 87. Mm-hmm. The, the USFL season, if it had still been around, would have been over in July of that year. They start up again after the NFL season would have ended. How would that have worked logistically? They just would have started throwing money at these guys to come sign now and commit to playing next uh, next year? Yeah. The idea was they would just, there would be a ton of guys who they could throw money at who are uncertain about their NFL futures. You know, once you start not having paychecks, it's a scary thing. And once you have teams coming along and saying, we will give you this amount to play football and you get the rest of the year off, um, these guys were convinced they would have gotten a lot of NFL players to jump. Why do you think the NFL, or and, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, I'm getting the impression, Jeff, that you think the NFL viewed the USFL as big enough of a threat that it would have eventually accepted some of the teams into the NFL, even though they're playing on two different chunks of the calendar. Oh, so what's the, why do I think they were... They were why, yeah, why do you, is that what you think, and, and why do you think that? Well, I think the number one thing was they kept stealing players. They were getting tons of... You have to remember, I mean, just as a... You know, Joe Cribbs was the starting running back for the Birmingham Stanton. Joe Cribbs was one of the best running backs in the NFL. Craig James, you know, the number of guys just in the draft alone. So 1985 draft yielded almost nothing for the USFL because people knew the league was on a downward spiral. If you look at the 84 and 83 drafts, I mean, they were signing away tons 
of the best prospects in, in college football. Tons of guys from Craig James and Tim Spencer, you know, uh, Reggie Collier. I mean, I, I, could, I could name a ton of them. And this terrified. The NFL was sending notes to college players saying, you know, more or less, there's only one league you want to play in, and it's the NFL. And they were terrified of the drafts, of the free agent jumping. I mean, Donald Trump, again, say what you want, like him and the owner of the LA Express, Bill Oldenburg. And Bill Oldenburg, you know, put together a – you got Gary Zimmerman, you know, who's going to be – you know, who ended up being in the Hall of Fame. He, he signed, I think, in the year he – 1984 of the six highest-rated college football offensive linemen, seniors, three of them went to the LA Express of the USFL. So they were just stealing players left and right, and it was terrifying. The Steve Young contract, a guy who played for the LA Express, that, what, $42 yeah. million, is that what it was, this annuity? Yeah. That, is it? Did, did he get all that money? Is that still paying out somewhere to him? No, he didn't get even, I think he ended up getting about seven. And uh, the problem was Bill Odenberg, the, uh, the owner, lost all his money. And then the USFL took over the Express, and they died. So he, um, I think he ended up getting about seven of a 40 million. But it was a little bit of a gimmick contract. You know, Walter, I read Walter Payton's biography, and Walter Payton signed an annuity deal, and they never called it a whatever it ended up being, you know, $30 million contract. They would say it was a blank contract with annual annuities of blah, 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 blah. The LA Express and USFL, to generate the hype, called it a $42 million contract. But it was never actually a $42 million deal. It sure seems like there were a bunch of guys in the 80s who acted like they had a hell of a lot more money than they really had, and they all ended up owning USFL teams. Yeah, well, Steve Young, actually, to his credit, wasn't one of them. And he was um, he's a great guy, and he, uh, he was really horrified by the whole experience. You know, he, he would have been the number one draft pick by that year by the Cincinnati Bengals. And he desperately did not want to go to Cincinnati. Um, the Bengals had Ken Anderson as a starter, still a really good player. Uh, and it was Cincinnati, Ohio, which he didn't want to go to. And, you know, the LA Express reached out, and uh, Lee Steinberg was his agent. And, you know, from the beginning, Steve was like, I don't, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. And he was like, look, you're going to get to pick. Actually, at first, the USFL was like, where do you want to play? If you were to come to the USFL, where would you want to play? And he was like, well, I'd play, I guess, L.A., and, that, you know, Lee Steinberg, the, the negotiations with the Express are absolutely crazy. Crazy, crazy, crazy. Where the owner is, you know, kicks Young out of his office and he's drunk and he's throwing a chair out the window because he's so upset that these negotiations are taking so long. And Young is like, what am I doing? I can't believe I'm doing this. Steve Young was a really modest kid at BYU. He drove a crappy car. Never had any money. You know, he always dreamed. He loved Roger Staubach. He always dreamed of playing in the NFL. But this team is throwing this deal that adds up to $40 million. And, you know, he's back and forth. And he finally agrees to the deal. And he's at the press conference. And at the last minute, he says to Steinberg, I can't do this. I can't do this. And Lee Steinberg's like, you have to go out there. And Young is just terrified because he doesn't know what he's walking into. He ends up walking into an absolute fiasco of a football situation where his, final, his second to last game of the USFL, the Express, they, you know, they're doing so poorly. They're drawing 6,000 fans to the LA Coliseum. They play their last game at Pierce College, which is an NAIA school where that seats 5,000. And his last home game is he's playing against Doug Williams and the Arizona Outlaws. And Steve Young and Doug Williams meet at midfield after the game. And I think Williams said to Young, what the hell are we doing here? <laughs> it is crazy. It's crazy. This is a million stories now. Well, and one of the favorite stories I had, the game between the Express and the Houston Gamblers, Steve Young versus Jim Kelly, an epic game, one of the best games ever played, and a paltry crowd at the L.A. Coliseum to witness it. Yeah, it's the greatest game arguably no one's ever seen. And you have to remember, I mean, the Gamblers, the Gamblers in and of themselves, Jim Kelly's a quarterback. He was in, Jim Kelly was about to sign with the Buffalo Bills. He literally is in the office. It's one of the great swipes of all time. He's in the office of the Buffalo Bills. He does not want to play for Buffalo. He told Buffalo not to draft him. They drafted him. He's in the office. He's, he's resigned to his fate. And George Allen, who was the, uh, the GM of the, uh, Bruce Allen, who was the GM of the uh, Chicago Blitz, calls through pretending he's like Steve, uh, Jim Kelly's brother-in-law or whatever and says, uh, I, need to speak to, I need to speak to Jim. It's a family emergency. And he's like, don't sign with them. We're going to make you a happy man. And his, he, his agent gets an excuse to get out of there. He meets with the USFL. They give him the choice of team. 
He decides to sign with the Houston Gamblers or the USFL. They line up. They have the great, you know, they, the, it's the run-and-shoot offense with Mouse Davis in Houston. His receivers are, they just get these Elfin receivers who all end up playing in the NFL. Richard Johnson, who played with the Detroit Lions, Clarence Verdan, Gerald McNeil, Ricky Sanders, all these like five nine guys from division schools who, who division two schools are in like four three forties, and they end up they're great. They run the the run and shoot. They're awesome, and they go to L A. and they play the Express with Steve Young and JoJo Townsell, and they just light up the field. It's Bing 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 Young Kelly Young Kelly, and nobody's there to see it. And and uh, the the run and shoot. You know, I I just have this vague memory that it was perfect from the get go. That it was. You know, Jim Kelly, the natural leader of that offense. But one of the great stories from your book, the idea that Kelly resisted at first and resisted until they brought in another quarterback and basically threatened to use him if he wasn't going to buy into the offense, and then it all turned. Yeah, it's so great. So Kelly comes in, and it's Jim Kelly from Miami, and it's a big deal. But he can't get the offense. He hates the offense. Because the offense is basically no tight end, sometimes one running back, a fleet of wide receivers, and you're making these quick reads, and, and it just Kelly was used to dropping back, and he had a really big arm, and you know throwing whatever 50 yards down the field. And he hates the offense, and he's really resistant to it. And um, so they get Todd Dillon, who'd been the quarterback at Long Beach State, and he ran an offense similar to that in college. And Todd Dillon shows up, and he gets it immediately, and he's running. All the everyone's like, "Whoa, Todd Dillon is better than Jim Kelly." And Jim Kelly has this meeting with Jerry Argovitz, the owner of the Gamblers, and he's livid. He's like, "How dare you bring this guy in?" And Argovitz is like, look, we're going to have the best guy play. So we know you're making millions of dollars. If you can't handle this, you're not playing. Of course he's going to play. But that was a whole psychological thing. And uh, Kelly's like, screw that. I'm better than Todd Dillon. And the next day, um, you know, Mouse Davis it pulls Argovitz aside. He's like, what did you say to him? Because he's getting this immediately. And he's like, reverse psychology, man. And, uh, <laughs> you know, the gamblers became this, this show, an amazing. They're all over YouTube. So if you want to have some pure football entertainment, just put in YouTube, Houston Gamblers, Jim Kelly, run and shoot, and you'll watch one of the coolest offensive experiences ever. And you talked about earlier how the USFL was able to pilfer such great players via their 1983 and 1984 drafts when the USFL finally died and those players were free to go to the NFL. And I remember this. I was late teens, early 20s in that time frame, and that you know, all these names of all these guys that I remember being great college players and they were in the USFL that I really wasn't paying a whole lot of attention to, but all of a sudden they're just landing with random NFL teams. Uh, Jim Kelly, Reggie White, uh-huh. Steve Young, Anthony Carter, Bobby A. Bear. Is there a guy that you're surprised didn't land in the NFL and didn't make it in the NFL based upon how well he played in the USFL? Yeah, there are two actually. So, um, the Oakland Invaders had a quarterback named Fred Bassana, who had played a cow. And Fred had been, uh, I think, a late draft pick of the New York Giants, cut, was in camp with the Bills, cut. And he was a great, great USFL quarterback, like really great. And Raymond Chester, who was a tight end for a couple of years, a former Raiders tight end, you know, told me the guy was absolutely an NFL quarterback. The other guy who actually did have a cup of coffee in the NFL afterwards was Chuck Fusina, who had been Doug Williams' backup with the Buccaneers, and he comes and he plays for the Philadelphia Stars, the Baltimore Stars also, and lights up the USFL. He's, one of the, he's kind of the Joe Montana of the USFL and uh, never gets a chance to start. And interestingly, you know, Jim Moore jumped from the Stars to coach the Saints, and he took Bear as a starting quarterback. And I think Fusina and a lot of those Stars guys were really hurt because they felt like he wasn't really showing loyalty. And the truth of the matter is Bobby Bear had a, had a huge NFL arm, and Fusina was more of a Chad Pennington type of quarterback. But... I think Fusina could have been good somewhere in the right system in the NFL. And you mentioned the Philadelphia slash Baltimore Stars. They were in each of the three USFL championship games. But what a bizarre scenario in 85 where they're in Philadelphia all week long and they go not to Baltimore but to College Park to play their games because they couldn't play in Baltimore because, what, the Orioles wouldn't let them play at the stadium there. And they still did well enough to, to win the championship. It's an amazing football story. He started out really poorly. And it was all like their offices were, so their offices were still at the vet for a while. Then they got evicted from the vet. And they had to have their offices in an abandoned ROTC facility uh, on the University of Pennsylvania campus. Uh, so they basically had all their meetings in this one relatively small room 
nowhere to hang your stuff. They were just picks a bunch of kids on the floor of like a Cub Scout clubhouse, and that's basically what the Baltimore Stars were. And there were the Baltimore Stars. Every, I think, Tuesday, Jim Moore, the head coach, would take the train down to Baltimore, and he would do his meeting with the local Baltimore media. But his players never stepped foot in Baltimore because they played in College Park, which is a couple hours away. Um, you know, University of Maryland, the draw was terrible. And, you know, they, they started out the season very mediocre. And one day, you know, Moore held a team meeting where he was like, look, this is, our season is a joke. This sucks. Nobody's having fun. I totally get it. You guys are the best team in this league, and you need to start doing something about it. And they wound up winning the final NFL championship. And one of the things that's cool is a bunch of those guys ended up winning Super Bowl. Sean Landetta was a punter on that team. Uh, Bart Oates was on that team. And when they won a Super Bowl with the Giants, New York Giants, in 1986, uh, New York City, because they played in New Jersey, would not allow them to have a ticker tape parade. And they ended up having a um, celebration inside Giant Stadium. I just remember this being a kid. And um, Dada Oates, they said that winning the USFL title and then having a parade in Philadelphia was far more satisfying than what they had with the Giants. I was talking to somebody yesterday about this book and reflecting on Boys Will Be Boys, the Michael Irvin scissors incident right out of the gates, some of the crazy shit that Charles Haley did. And there isn't quite somebody that rises to that level, but Big Paper seems to be the closest from the USFL. Tell us about Big Paper. I would say he does rise. I think he would fit in. Well, he didn't stab anybody in the neck with scissors, and there were no stories about him, you know, uh, doing certain things that are otherwise unmentionable, even though we aren't FCC regulated. But paper, paper seems to be pretty close to either of those guys. I'm going to argue that he fits right in. I'll make sure. All right, Greg Fields is uh, so early on in the process. When you write these books, people will be like, "Did you hear about so and so?" And and you know project like this to talk about. No, I didn't. And I thought, oh, you need to. So Greg Fields was a guy, he played at Grambling, two years at Grambling. He was a pretty good defensive end, defensive lineman. Uh, signed with the Baltimore Colts. And his nickname is Big, Big Paper because when he was a rookie, I think a rookie with the Colts in his second year, the Colts drafted Barry Krause out of Alabama who was making a lot of money. And he started calling in the locker room. He would call Barry Krause Big Paper because Big Paper meaning he made a lot of money. And Barry Krause started calling him Big Paper back. So he took this, this nickname, Big Paper. So he flames out in Baltimore. This is a Greg Fields story. It's the greatest unknown story in football. And he signs with the Atlanta Falcons. He goes to camp with the Falcons, and uh, he finds out he's about to be cut. And they come to knock on his door, and he refuses to leave. He literally refuses to leave. And Dakota, the GM of the Falcons, has to get an armed security guard to come and tell Greg Fields he needs to leave the facility. So that's how they got Greg Fields out. And usually that kind of thing ends your career. But then the USFL comes along. He signs with the LA Express, plays with them in 1983, 12 and a half sacks, good year. You know, it was an 18-game season, so it's not quite as impressive. But still, 12 and a half sacks, good year. John Hadel takes over his coach second year. And John Hadel doesn't think Greg Fields is going to be that good of a player. So he decides he's going to cut him. And people at the Express are like, listen, you just got to be careful with paper. He's, you know, he's a little volatile. And uh, John Hadel's like, nah, it's fine, it's fine. He calls him in, and Greg Fields says beforehand, before he goes, if I get cut today, I'm going to effing punch someone in the face. So John Hadle calls him in, and he says, look, Greg, it's been really good having you here, but blah, blah, blah. Fields draws back his, his fist and punches the head coach in the face. <laughs> and Hadle, who's only 44 and a good an NFL quarterback, is a big guy, um, punches him back. And so Fields gets pulled out of the uh, – they pull Greg Fields out. Now, um, Fields is really pissed off, and he starts allegedly calling in death threats. I'm going to freaking kill that guy, John Hadel, blah, blah, blah. So the LA Express actually hired this guy named Nelson Mercado, who is the private security guard for Liberace and lived in Las Vegas. And they call him, and they're like, Can you, are you, would you be willing to come for a few weeks? We have this scenario. So they, uh, he's, he asked Liberace if he can take him or whatever four-week break, and Liberace lets him, and he drives back. He's from the L.A. area. And they put a tracker on Greg Fields' car. And according to Nelson, like, Fields was showing up at practices. He'd be showing up at games. He would call in threats. I'm going to kill your coach. I'm going to shoot your blah, blah, blah. Um, and because the USFL is a USFL, Nelson Mercado was like, I can't believe this is my life. Like, my life is, I'm going to be tracking this crazy defensive lineman. 
And because the USFL is the USFL, the San Antonio Gunslingers sign Greg Fields, which is the greatest thing ever. And when he shows up in San Antonio, um, his reputation is well-known. The entire coaching staff greets him, and they're all wearing pads. Uh, and they're standing beneath a clip. Fields punches coach, and he just starts cracking up. And the great conclusion of Greg Fields in the USFL is he plays for the San Antonio Gunslingers. Uh, San Antonio Gunslingers are owned by uh, Clint Mangus, who's a, uh, you know, had, had run out of money and stopped paying players. Rick Neuheisel talks about this at length in the, in the 30 for 30. And one day, Greg Fields, and Fields told me this story, Greg Fields follows Clint Mangus to his home. And Clint Mangus lived on this, uh, on this uh, ranch with all these animals and blah, blah, blah. I called it the Magic Kingdom. He follows Clint Mangus home, and he has a baseball bat in his car. And Mangus sees Greg Fields behind him, and he's like, oh, hey, hey, Greg. And Fields has a baseball bat. And he's like, I see where you live. You better pay me. And Mangus, you know, is this little guy, and here's this huge Greg Fields with a baseball bat. And Mangus goes into the house, comes out with a bag that I think was $10,000 in cash in it. And he says, are we square? And Fields is like, you'll never see me again. And that day, Fields drove home to San Francisco. <laughs> And you ultimately tracked him down That uh, near the end of the book. That, that's a great story, that, the lengths that you have to go to. And that's why I have so much respect for this kind of an effort, to track these people down, to find them, to chase the leads. How, how uh, happy were you to finally oh. have your sit-down with Greg Fields? And did you get punched in the face? Let me just tell you. No, I did not. He was a lovely guy. Wait, it was the best. So I have a son. He's now 11. He was 9 at the time, 9 or 9.5, nine named Emmett. And Emmett is re- he's a, there's no kid in America who's more into the USFL than my son just because of this book. And I was like, like he came with me to find Ed Luther, former backup quarterback for the Jack uh, for the uh, Jacksonville Bulls. And um, I was like, you want to go on a field trip to find Greg Fields? And he's like, yes. So I had two addresses. That's all I had for Greg Fields. I drove to San Francisco, and we have some friends in San Francisco. We stayed over, or we stayed at hotel actually. And the next morning, we were going to take a long walk to find Greg Fields. I had an address. And we're walking and walking, and we get to this really bad area of San Francisco, and we walk past, no, no exaggeration, a mental hospital. We walk through a field with, like, shattered glass and all this stuff, and I'm with my nine-year-old kid exercising the worst parental judgment ever. And we get to Greg Fields' house, and there's a lockbox and whatever. I knock on the door, and nobody answers, and I'm like, oh, he's not here. And my son was generally disappointed. So I had a second address that was in the projects of San Francisco. And I was going to go that night. And I was like, I can't take my kid. I just can't do it. I don't know what this scenario is like. So I leave him with some friends. And I go. And uh, third floor, public housing, San Francisco. Not bad. You know, not somewhere. But third floor, public housing. And I, I have this address. And I ring the doorbell for the apartment. And this woman looks at me. And uh, threw like a pane of glass in the door. She's like, can I help you? And I have a copy of one of my books. And I'm like, look, my name is Jeff Perlman. And I write books for a living. And I'm trying to find... Greg Fields. I don't know if you know Greg Fields. And she's like, oh, that's my brother. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm trying to find him. And she's like, well, I don't really talk to him that much anymore. But if you give me your number, I can pass it on to uh, him. And I'm like, that'd be great. But I don't expect to ever hear from him. Who knows? Well, I'm driving home maybe 20 minutes later, driving back to where we're staying in San Francisco. Hey, this is Greg. Who's this? And I'm like, Greg Fields. Oh, my God, this is Jeff Rowan. Turns out he lives in Sacramento. The next day, Emmett Perlman, age nine, Jeff Perron and his dad and Greg Fields are sitting in the food court at a mall in Sacramento, California. My Greg Fields is spitting a strawberry Cold Stone Creamery ice cream all over my face as I interview him, not on purpose. And I'm the happiest guy in the world. <laughs> well, uh, a lot of people are going to be happy when they read the book. And before I let you go, we've got two leagues that are planning to display uh, play spring football. The Alliance of American Football begins in February 2019. The XFL begins the following year. So many of these leagues have failed. Do you think there's a chance? Do you root for these alternative leagues to take root just because of your your fandom of the USFL? Oh, yeah. I totally do. I really think um, I think there are a few lessons. There's, there's some really good lessons to learn from the USFL sort of downfall. Number one is um, and the, the the alliance seems smart about this because I think all the teams are legal. It's like you can't have one team or two teams that are just like we're going to spend big money and the other teams don't. It's impossible. Number two, you can't at this point. You couldn't in the '80s. You can't now directly take on the NFL. It's just unrealistic. So playing in spring is smart. If your players are called up to the NFL or a team, an NFL team wants to sign one of your players, 
don't just let them celebrate it. You know, this is an achievement for our league. It's showing that blah, blah, blah. Um, I almost think you should build it as catch, catch the future stars right now. And the other thing is the most successful markets in large part were smaller markets. Jacksonville, again, was the biggest success in the USFL. Um, Memphis did really well in the USFL. Orlando was on pace to doing really well in the USFL. It doesn't make sense to go into huge markets where there's a million things. Going to L.A. would make zero sense for these leagues. Go into smaller markets. Find a Birmingham. Find a Memphis. Go into cities like that. Uh, Albany, New York, is as weird as that might sound. Cities that would be really psyched to have pro sports and sort of cultivate the fan base there. And I think, I think yes, they have a shot. And, Jeff, one of the things I talk about all the time, because you said it doesn't make sense, take on the NFL. When the NFL makes these rule changes aimed at making the game safer for whatever reason, whether they care about the health and safety of the players, whether they care about mom and dad looking over at little Jimmy and saying you're never going to play football based upon what they're seeing come through the, the TV screen, I feel like the NFL at some point is going to cross a boundary that's going to give one of these guys out there, the modern-day version of Donald Trump, and maybe Trump, maybe Trump, maybe this will be his new bridge to try to cross when he's done being president. You start a football league that plays football the way it was played in the 80s with with all of the restrictions that we've seen over the last decade gone and embraces the brutality, embraces the contact, embraces the violence, and could take on the NFL if the NFL continues to skew towards safety the way that it has. I don't disagree. I think that'd be pretty shameful. Uh, the idea that we're just going to throw these guys out there and, and, and you're not even going to be making as much money as NFL players. And then, you know, three, like I'll just tell you real quick, there was a guy who played for the Stars named Mike Money for the Million Stories, Mike Lush, who's a hard-hitting safety, played for the Stars as a really good player. And he, his memory is shot, his body is shot. And he played a couple years in the NFL, a couple years in the USFL, didn't play enough years to get any sort of pension. And, um, is just a decimated individual. And I would, I would really hate, I understand the appeal of that. I get why fans would be drawn to that and some players. Um, it would make me pretty sad to see that. And I agree with you completely. And maybe that's why the NFL should try to have a balance that doesn't push it so far one way that it does create that opening. And, you know, I'll watch UFC pay-per-view events from time to time, and I'm, I'm astonished by the degree of brutality. And yeah. maybe it's not big enough to draw the same scorn and, and attention and scrutiny the NFL does. But, you know, consenting adults know the risks. Now they can't say they don't know the risks. I think players would play. And the question is, would the fans flock to it? And I think a, enough of the fans of the NFL would to make it viable if they get turned off by the kickoff going away, by the three-point stance possibly going away, by all these other changes we've seen. Yeah, I don't think I don't think you're. I don't know how I feel about it, but I don't think you're wrong. Yeah, I feel the same way though. I I I don't know how I'd feel about watching it. I don't know how I'd feel about covering it. But I feel like the NFL is flirting with that potential outcome if it continues uh, down its path. Maybe it's learned a lesson or two from the time in the '80s when it systematically crushed the NFL. That's it. That's what I. You know, I keep saying we're done. We're done. We're done. I keep thinking other things. The memo that was uncovered from the NFL. Yeah. about how to basically destroy the USFL. My God. And I don't think the NFL operates any differently today, but talk about a smoking gun. How in the hell do you not walk out of that courtroom with a billion-dollar verdict after you find this memo that the USFL found where the NFL clearly was intent on destroying the USFL? Yeah, Mike, it's also crazy. The USFL had a really strong case. They really did of collusion of an, the NFL, you know, doing everything it could to destroy the league. The trial was a nightmare. And um, there's a really obscure book that nobody read except for me and probably seven other people, written by one of the attorneys for the NFL. And he wrote very specifically, we found we needed a bad guy, and Donald Trump was our bad guy. And he fit it perfectly. He was our stooge. He went up there. They didn't call him. They didn't call You know, there were a ton of guys ready to be called, and the U.S. attorneys called none of them. They had almost no witnesses, and their star witness was Donald Trump. And he was a freaking disaster. And I would have told you this long before he entered politics. That's not a political decision. He was a disaster. He told everyone, we were going to win this suit. This is going to be easy. This is a lock. He hired the wrong attorneys, and he made himself the centerpiece of the trial. And he was a disaster, and Pete Rozelle was believable. And that is why they lost that trial, specifically because of Donald Trump. And you know what? 
people, I know there will be people who will be like, oh, this is a guy just with a grudge, blah, blah, blah. Again, zero to do with politics. I loved the USFL. The USFL was my favorite league of all time. I got paid almost nothing to write this book. It was a pure passion project on my part because I thought this league was really something special. And it pains me that one guy came along and he says greed and selfishness. I mean, you know, if you watch that 30 for 30 with Mike Tolan, Trump calls the USFL small potatoes. And that infuriated so many former players in that league. That was a recurring theme of interviews I had. How dare this? It wasn't small potatoes to me, the guy who played defensive line at Delaware for you know a couple of years and finally got a shot, or Sam Mills out of Montclair State, who was given a shot after being cut by multiple NFL and CFL teams. It wasn't small potatoes to Chuck Cena, to Fred Bassana, to all these guys who finally were able to live their football dream. And the whole small potatoes thing just really summed up his approach to that league. Well, Jeff, it was a lot of fun to read. A lot of things I had forgotten, many more things I never knew. Football for a Buck, the crazy rise and crazier demise of the USFL. It can be pre-ordered, I assume, through Amazon and other sources. It, it is available September 11, 2018. And I know we'll be writing about some of these uh, anecdotes in here once the book is published. And uh, we've been talking about maybe doing an excerpt. I'd love to do that. Jeff, it was a great conversation. All the best. Great work on all your books. I've enjoyed every one of them that I've read, and we hope to talk to you again down the road. All right, thanks again to Jeff. And I look, read the USFL book that he wrote. Read Boys Will Be Boys if you haven't. Read the Brett Favre biography, Gunslinger. Excellent books and excellent work. Very thorough, deep knowledge and understanding. And if you're a football fan, you learn a lot about the sport, about the people involved, about business realities, and everything in between. So highly recommend it, and we'll work with Jeff to get an excerpt of Football for a Buck that we'll put at PFT at some point as the release date approaches. All right, some questions. I don't have a whole lot of time because that, that ended up being a longer interview than I expected. But, you know, I never know how long they're going to be. They just go until the conversation's over, and 50 minutes later, the conversation was over. So... I'm going to move on now to the actual questions instead of continuing to waste your time explaining why I've taken so much time to get to the point where I don't have much time left. All right. Given the Eagles have an increasingly strong secondary, will Jim Schwartz begin rushing the passer more? That's from Tom G. Post, member of the PFTPM Posse. Look, I, I think the better your secondary is, the better chance you have getting to the quarterback. If you lock down the receivers, and the quarterback can't find an open man, that tick, 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 you know, it gets to the boom eventually. And if you don't have someone open you can throw the ball to, then the pressure is going to come. Derek Barnett, his his play in the NFC Championship game, Brandon Graham and what he's done, Fletcher Cox creating havoc, Michael Bennett. When we talked to Zach Ertz the other day, he's like, I don't know how, how we got Michael Bennett, but we have Michael Bennett. So, the Eagles could be as good, if not better, than they were last year, and that should scare plenty of other teams out there. At Ray Moon 0319, would, will you add pro football news that's not NFL-related once it becomes a viable option in the future? PFTPM Posse responded to that on my behalf. He already is. It's called Pro Football Talk for that very reason, because having NFL anywhere in the title would have meant PFT versus NFL in court. I'm a former lawyer, yada, yada. It's, it, look, here's the bottom line. It is pro football talk because they don't want to infringe on any copyrights. And if there are viable leagues out there, and I kind of hope this gets in the whole USFL theme. I, like, I, what would we have done if we existed in the 80s? Would we have covered the USFL? I mean, I, I'll talk about the CFL from time to time when there are stories that I think are interesting to you. There will be discussion of the Alliance of American Football of the XFL. Now, if the games stink and the players stink and nobody watches them and nobody's interested, then, you know, the market dictates whether or not there's any coverage of it. But it's professional football, and, yeah, I plan to pay attention to it. I want more football, not less football, and I like the idea of a potentially viable spring league. And as Jeff Perlman said earlier in the podcast, the lessons learned by the USFL could be applied to some of these other leagues as they try to just exist for more than a few years because so many of these other football leagues haven't been able to get off the ground. At the real no, are you surprised that Antonio Brown being announced for the cover of Madden wasn't broadcast via Facebook Live? Well done. Darth Blunt 47, who finishes with more career touchdown passes, Tom Brady or Drew Brees. I, I'm going to go with Brees. Brees is younger. 
And and I have a feeling Breeze is going to end up playing deeper into his lifespan than Brady. Whenever Brady leaves, however old he is, I think Breeze is going to play longer. At at arm 55, where do you see Le'Veon Bell playing next season? You know, I went through the other day and I made a list of the teams that would potentially go after him now if the franchise tender were suddenly rescinded. And I don't think the Steelers would rescind the tender now. I think they'd wait until late in training camp. Number one, to see what James Conner can do. Number two, to stick it to Le'Veon Bell. Because you throw him out there late August, early September, the Hayes and the Bard for 31 other teams, he's not going to get the money that he would have gotten on the open market. He's not going to get $14.5 million for one year as a placeholder until he can hit the market next March. But just looking at the list here, Buffalo Bills. with And, and it's gotten very quiet with LaShawn McCoy, which is surprising to me. But uh, if, if something happens with him... Here's Le'Veon Bell. The Miami Dolphins, would they be interested in him next year? I think they would be. The Jets, they've got the cash, they've got the cap space, they've got the incentive to make their team better with the Le'Veon Bell. Ravens and Browns, wouldn't that be interesting if they thought come next year we'll take a swing at adding Le'Veon Bell and subtracting him from the Steelers in the process? The Colts, they need good players if they can find them. Doesn't fit with their draft and develop strategy, but when Le'Veon Bell suddenly becomes available... Maybe your strategy goes out the window. How about the Broncos, right? They're kind of in transition with their running game. They're hoping that things will work out. If they don't, maybe they go Le'Veon Bell next year. I don't know that John Elway is going to want to pay a lot of money for him. However, the Eagles, Jay Ajayi entering contract year. How about the Eagles adding Le'Veon Bell as of 2019? So there's some teams out there that are fascinating. And the Green Bay Packers, I thought they'd be players last year for Adrian Peterson. Wouldn't that be something if they could get Le'Veon Bell and pair him up with Aaron Rodgers for the last couple of years of Aaron Rodgers' career? So, look, he's going to be the most coveted free agent next year. And if he does get his franchise tender revoked, I still think that it'll be a one-year deal and it'll be a free agent next year anyway. But uh, get ready because it's going to be very interesting to see where Le'Veon Bell lands. And it will be a shock at this point if he ends up with the... Pittsburgh Steelers. Reverend Markworth wants to know, is T.O. just blowing smoke about playing again, and can that do anything to put on, put a hold on his enshrinement in the Hall of Fame? He's already in. I mean, one of the reasons the five-year waiting period is to make sure a guy's done, but if you want to sandbag for five years, you can come back and play, and there's nothing they can do about it. It, it sounds like he's serious about playing in the CFL. Now, if he goes to the CFL and he's just dominant, would an NFL team sign him? It's been six years since the last time he was on an NFL roster. So it, uh, it it's it's an interesting time. The possibility that Owens would play a game for the Edmonton Eskimos on Thursday, August 2nd, the same night of the Hall of Fame game, that is amazing to me. And I wonder if seeing that on the schedule is what caused him to say, you know what, let's do this. Let's do this. Even if it's just for a game or two, let me show up in Edmonton on August the 2nd, the game kicks off at 10 p.m. Eastern time. Wouldn't that be funny if they moved up the kick to coincide with the start of the NFL Hall of Fame game from Canton, Ohio? And then two days later, he goes to Tennessee and he he does his enshrinement speech there. I, I, I'm fascinated by this. I, I don't look. Hey, let's find out what's he have left in the tank. He's 44. We saw the video of him running fast. Let, let's see what he can do. Let's see if he can stay healthy. Let's see if he can if he can compete with the younger guys who'd be covering him. Uh, I, I like it. I, I just like good stories, and I think it's a good story. Gong Show West, what's your best Catholic school story from the formative years of Mike? Did they refer to you as Michael? I, I told this story about, remember the nun? I bumped into the nun, and she dug her fingernails into me, and that was a big to-do. I'd have to think about that, because that's probably the best slash worst story that I can share. Matt and Beantown, the Le'Veon Bell contract dispute got me thinking about player-agent relationships and aligning incentives. Agents want the biggest contract possible. Some players might take less for more guaranteed years. Can you think of a case where an agent screwed over a player out of greed? I, oh, absolutely. I mean, a lot of agents have from time to time done deals that are in their best interest versus what's in the player's best interest, and you want the interest to be aligned. But, uh, you know, sh- l- l- for example... If the, you know, if the player uh, is offered a shorter-term deal for less money, and maybe that's in his best interest, but the longer-term deal pays out more in the first three years, and the agent gets a bigger fee in the first three years, and the worry about the crap 
three years on the back end later. You know, I don't know. Does the does the player fully appreciate that and understand it in every case? I don't know. But there's always, anytime you have a third party involved, there's always potentially diverging interests that get kind of shoved under the rug as the sausage gets made. And uh, I, I don't have an agent. I, I don't need a third person to come in and screw up my interests. I'm capable capable of screwing them up entirely on my own. At Tree True, would the NFL be better off if Donald Trump owned the Bills? Not, after reading the USFL book and talking to Jeff Perlman and witnessing things, I mean, Donald Trump's a force of nature. And Donald Trump in the room at these league meetings, see, I think that's why Pete Rozelle told him in 1984, you will never own an NFL team if I have anything to do with it. Because I think Pete Rozelle understands what a disruptive force, a strong personality, somebody who will push and push and push and push for his way. You know, Jerry Jones, a lot of similarities, but ultimately Jerry Jones is going to do what's right for the league. I don't know, based upon reading the USFL book, whether Donald Trump would ever do what's right for anyone other than him as it relates to a sporting endeavor. So I don't know that the NFL would be better off. Because on one hand, he wouldn't be in a position as president to give them a hard time about the anthem policy. But on the other hand... He'd be in all the meetings. He'd be pushing his agenda on Roger Goodell. He'd be maybe be pushing for his own commissioner like Jerry Jones did. Really are a lot of similarities between Donald Trump and Jerry Jones. And, and, and it, you know, if Trump had just waited, maybe he would have had an opportunity to buy one of these NFL franchises late 80s, early 90s, and kind of slip in the back door that way. If he had just been a little more subtle about it, maybe it would have worked out. Uncle Larry 112, while the percentage of salary cap with the team's gross revenue may work for setting Aaron Rodgers' initial salary, wouldn't there be an issue of future gains in quarterback salaries outpace increases in cap and revenue? Another approach could be a multiplier of the franchise tag amount. Look, here's the thing. If the salary cap isn't continuing to go up, the quarterback salaries aren't going to go up. They're just not. If the cap is flat, they're not going to have the money to give quarterbacks more and more and more and more and more. And, you know, look, they need to have a creative solution here to address Aaron Rodgers' apparent concern that he's going to get leapfrogged again. And and I feel like he wants a makeup deal. He did a bad deal in 2013 where he locked in at $22 million a year, and here we are in 2018, and he's been jumped by a laundry list of guys who are not nearly as good as he is most recently. And Matt Ryan's close, but he's not Aaron Rodgers at $30 million a year. I think he wants a makeup contract, and I don't think the Packers are going to do it. And I think ultimately the Packers know they're in the damn thing he's going to do about it. He won't come out and publicly jostle for a new contract because, one, the response will be, Aaron, why did you sign the contract that you did in 2013? And second, Packers fans will get mad at him, and I think he's trying to avoid that outcome. All right, let's see what else we got here, and then i got to get running. I should probably wrap it up. I, I like to go out on a bang. There isn't much of a bang here. At the C.J. Newman, would you rather have a 99-speed quarterback or a 99-deep accuracy quarterback? Give me 99-speed. That's the one thing about Madden. Speed is the key. Speed's what we need. What we need is speed. Greasy, fast, Italian speed. Wasn't that what Mickey said to Rocky when he was having him Chase the chicken around the yard, and Rocky said, I feel like a Kentucky Fried Idiot. All right, one more real question before we go. PFTPM policy, doesn't the best and final offer made to Le'Veon Bell and leaked by the Steelers to the media confirm they had no legitimate intentions to secure his services beyond 2018, and doesn't the CBA require teams to make legitimate offers in good faith to tag players unlike here? That's close, but it's not exactly what the CBA requires. The CBA requires that when a player is tendered, either franchise tag, transition tag, restricted free agency, when the tender is extended, the team must have a good faith intent to employ the player at that tender for the coming season. It can't be a, a uh, an effort to uh, you know leverage him. It can't be an effort to do a trade. You have to want the player. You have to intend to keep the player for the year at that salary. So there's no requirement they... They negotiate in any specific way as it relates to the long-term deal. And, you know, the problem is this. And people complain about the franchise tag all the time because it's not good for the players. Well, the market for running backs is eight, eight and a half million. Le'Veon Bell is making 14 and a half this year. See, I think the challenge in doing the long-term deal is how do you do year two, three, four, five, whatever of the Le'Veon Bell deal when you recognize the market value? 
And for him, hey, I'm getting 14.5 this year. What, I'm going to 8 next year? And what about the year after that? What about the year after that? So I think the dynamics of the market and the way the franchise tag is calculated. Look, that calculation the NFL Players Association secured in 2011, that that's a pretty good deal. Because the, those franchise tag numbers, in a lot of cases, outpace the market at the position, especially at running back. All right, I got to run. I'm not sure what the rest of the week's schedule is going to be. We have part two of the annual NBC visit coming up as of tomorrow. Tuesday, we had a great visit with some of the executives at NBC, digital, TV, uh, videos on the website. Great opportunity. We do it once a year. We sit down and we, we just make sure we're all on the same page and we try to come up with some ideas. And we've got some ideas that relate to the PFTPM podcast, by the way. So too early to share any of them because I don't know where they're going to go. But uh, there are some ideas. There is some percolation. Tomorrow is more of the PFT Live annual get-together. And that one lasts a little bit longer. Uh, it does entail plenty of business, but it also entails watching Goodfellas and drinking wine and drinking beer and drinking whatever and cooking food and just hanging out playing cornhole and uh, uh, having a, an overall good time. So um, we may do... We may do an addition to the PFTPM podcast with Stats and Matt Casey, the coordinating producer of PFT Live, in the room as well. We may do that, so stay tuned. I'll get you some details as the week unfolds. Check us out, as always, at ProFootballTalk.com, and have a great day. You can find the PFTPM podcast on Art19, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Google Play. If you like what you hear, and you will, subscribe for automatic downloads. Leave a rating and review. That'll help new listeners find our show and push us up the charts. Search PFTPM for your evening update from Pro Football Talk.